Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke, the first chapter. Elizabeth, likely Mary's aunt, her relative, upon seeing the pregnant Mary, cries out with a loud voice and says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed or blessed is the fruit of your womb. I've wanted to do something for many years. In fact, it's probably fair to say I've wanted to do something for many decades. And I quit procrastinating this year and am doing it. And that was to do a little study on Mary's view of Christ. I'm going to confess that I intended that it would be today's study, but it will at least leak over into next week, and I have no promises beyond that. Besides the Lord Jesus himself, no biblical personality has ever been more misunderstood than Mary, the mother of Jesus. In fact, history has not been very kind to the truthfulness about Mary. Catholicism has blasphemously, and I mean truly blasphemously, venerated her beyond what the scriptures say. And as a reflex, Protestants have largely ignored her and her unique position in the life of Jesus. One of the kind blessings of God in my own life and ministry has been the privilege of serving on the board of the Italian Theological Academy. Uh, I get to travel to Italy. I've been there many times and had countless discussions on the ITA board about ministry there. Every single memory I have of the Italian Theological Academy board getting together and strategizing about ministry in Italy, every single conversation I remember comes to the issue of the idolatry of Mary. How do you transform someone's understanding about Mary according to the Bible and not tradition? Because until you do that, you have trouble unscrambling Italian Catholics' view of Jesus. One of the most vivid impressions in my mind of one of the trips I made to Italy are the different ways that Mary is portrayed. And, and honestly, I could go on for an hour. I just chose a few simple examples. There's a mural on the wall of St. Peter's Cathedral there's also a, a very similar uh, view uh, mural on the wall of St. Mary Major in Rome. And this mural is of Jesus crowning Mary the queen of heaven. It's 40 feet high. That mosaic, which is on the ceiling of Basilica de Santa Majora in Rome, which is St. Mary the Major, the major saint in Rome. Also, not only does it have that, that relief, that mosaic on the ceiling, 
of Mary being crowned by Jesus, the Queen of Heaven. If you walk outside, there is a large cross. Some of you, you on the Reformation tour saw this. I think the, the cross has got to be 15, 20 feet high. On this cross, on one side is Jesus with his arms stretched out, dying. And on the other side of this cross is Mary, who has been taught to Catholicism as the co-redemptrix, the co-redeemer with Jesus. More personally, there's a statue in the Church of the Jesu, the Jesuit church in Rome. And again, our Reformation tour went there this last spring. And there's a massive statue, a very intricate marble carving of Mary, the queen of heaven, with a lightning bolt in her hand, casting Protestants into hell. She's depicted as judge and queen of heaven. Catholicism teaches that Mary was immaculately conceived without sin and remained a virgin her whole life. That's interesting. Most people, when they are uninformed, think the immaculate conception is about Jesus. No, the immaculate conception is about his mother who was born, according to Catholic tradition, without sin. That's why she could be the, sin, the, 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 the savior bearer. It's a belief that her own condition at her conception was sinless. Specifically, she was immaculate by an act of God, conceived so that she could be sinless and a fitting mother to the Lord. You might find it interesting to know that that was not Catholic dogma until 1854, put in by papal bull by Pope Pius IX. Pretty recent in Catholic history to have put her in a sinless condition as she was born. Also, the perpetual virginity of Mary is taught, that she remained a virgin her whole life, which is very easily and grammatically disproven in many places in the gospel. Uh, think of Matthew's gospel, which says that Joseph did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born. Any grammarian would tell you that that says that they had normal relationship after he was born. She's given such a high place in Catholic theology that it's taught that to get to Jesus, you must first go through her. Kim and I toured a uh, church in Syracuse, Syracuse uh, on the bottom tip of Sicily many years ago. It's at the base of the little island of Sicily. The church contains a plaster plaque depend, depicting Mary. It's a little, little uh, plaster relief of Mary. It's actually a cheap little plaster relief. But according to tradition, for four days in 1953, from August 29th to September 1st, this plaque reportedly wept. It, it exuded tears. It was a miracle that was filmed. I've seen these old black and white films of it. Cheesy would be a compliment. They also said, the Catholic Church says that they sent the water, the tears that were coming from this plaster relief, to scientists who verified that they were indeed saline human tears. None of those reports exist yet to this day. 
As you enter into this church that was built for this plaster relief, that was the whole church was built to demonstrate this little relief. There's a sign above the door. And as you enter the sign, Kim and I were shocked to stop and see what it said. It was in Latin, and our translator told us what it said. Quote, anything the mother requests of the son, the son will not deny. End quote. The obvious conclusion is to pray to Mary to get her to talk to Jesus who has influence on the father. I could go on and on. There's a little statue of Mary uh, on Sicily that has a church built around it. Apparently, there was a, a few years ago, there was a, a Mount Etna erupted. Lava was flowing down. It was approaching a city, a little village. And they took a little statue of the Madonna, a statue of Mary, put it in the way of the lava, and the lava stopped. I could go on and on. I wonder, I just wonder, this is my sanctified imagination. But in Revelation 7, we're told that the Lord wipes away the tears of believers. And I just wonder if he's wiped away the tears of Mary, who's been made aware of how she has been venerated. Things like this make us, as Protestants, skittish talking about Mary. I think this is a tragic mistake. Just as we are instructed by the responses of so many to Jesus in the New Testament, I don't think we should neglect considering Mary's response and Mary's view of the Lord and what we can learn from that. Let me say it this way. Nobody, think of this, nobody, no one had a better seat in the theater of the incarnation than his mother. She's the only person who witnessed his birth and his death. Add to that, she's the only person who was at the birth and the death and his ascension in the book of Acts. We'll see that next week. And can I be very just testimonial and personal with you? I had a struggle in my, in my uh, college senior year. I was philosophy, studying philosophy as a philosophy major and was in a senior level the, theodicy seminar. It was a, a seminar with six philosophy students studying the, uh, the historical articulation of theodicy. How do you defend a good God with an evil world? How, and we were reading everything that we could on this issue. And there were times I went home. I don't want to be awkward about this, but I held my Bible and I just wept. And I remember thinking, I, th- I think this is true. The more I prayed, the more I read. I was in the Gospels during that seminar. And I clearly remember reading the Christmas story. And it dawned on me, if anyone in the history of the world, if anyone in the life of Jesus ever knew if Jesus Christ was a fraud, it would have been her. And yet, we find her following him up to including his death and with the gathering in the little room in Acts and she stood there and watched her son ascend into heaven. And I remember thinking, if she knew all she knew 
and believed it to be true, I think I can too. I think most of you are familiar with Mark Lowry's song that, it's only a few decades old, but it's really come to be a, an anthem at Christmas. It's the title of this little series, Mary, Did You Know? I know you know the song. I know you know the, 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 the melody, but just listen to it as a poem. Listen to it as, a, as something that teaches you. The author says, Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? And that this child you delivered would soon deliver you? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would give sight to a blind man? Did you know that your baby boy would calm the storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where... Where angels tried. I never get over this line. And when you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. What did she know? She knew far more in the beginning than we could ever imagine. But by the time she watched him ascend into heaven, she knew everything that that song asked. What I want to do is, this week and next, consider Mary's unique views of Jesus. Not to glorify or idolize Mary, but to glorify the Lord through how she understood and saw her son and her Savior. Now, what I want to do is I'm going to give you the whole outline as a snapshot, and then we're going to go back. I think we can do the first two today. We'll see. I just want you to see the whole thing as a panoply, and then we'll come back and kind of dissect it. Mary's unique views of Jesus, her son and her Savior. We're going to look, first of all, as a favored teenage mother. In other words, her view of Jesus' conception and birth. Secondly, as an observant, contemplating mother, Jesus' growth from childhood to manhood. Thirdly, as an imperfect, sinful mother, yes, the New Testament affirms that, Jesus' life, ministry, and miracles. Fourthly, as a pierced, wounded mother, Jesus' sufferings and death. And lastly, as a Christian, hopeful mother, which will be Jesus' resurrection and ascension. She was there for all of this. And I think we can learn much from her view. Let's look first of all, Mary's unique views of Jesus, her son and savior. Number one, as a favored teenage mother. In other words, Jesus' conception and birth. I know you know this story. I know you read this story. We read part of the story today. Luke chapter one, Luke chapter one. We're looking at her as a favored teenage mother, specifically her view of Jesus' conception and birth. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. I have wondered so many times about that conversation between the father and Gabriel and what he was telling Gabriel to go do. 
to a virgin who was engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, remember Ruth, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one. The one to whom God has looked with mercy and grace. Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, before he says anything else, I'm amazed at Mary's next thought. She was perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of greeting, what kind of salutation was this? Lots of stuff in the blank spaces we don't know. How did she know it was an angel? I don't know. We know the angels dressed with really white clothes. There was no bleach in those days, so you could get things kind of a dingy brown. That was as white as you could go. And their clothes were always dazzling. I don't know, but somehow she knew. And if it was any question, listen to what happens next. The angel said to her, do not be afraid. Well, she was perplexed or confused is what the Greek word means, confused. I'm not sure she was afraid yet, but she's about to be. Do not be afraid, Mary. He's kind in telling her some forewarning. For you have found favor with God. That's nothing to be afraid about. That's something to rejoice about. And guess what? Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most Hi. She had to be instantly thinking, son of the most high, my son, I'm engaged to Joe. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, Joe? No, his father, David. <laughs> And he will reign. He will be the king over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Those are all affirmations that she was about to give birth to. Drum roll, the long-awaited Messiah, the king of Israel. Amazing. Now Mary, being a sharp girl, probably between 13 and 15 years old. Why do we know that? They were going to register for the census. You register for the census typically after your first bar mitzvah, which would have made Joseph about the same age. She's a junior hire. She says, um, Mr. Angel, uh, how can this be since I am a virgin? Now, she could have been thinking, well, this will happen after Joseph and I are married. But she had no guarantee that she would not be barren. Or remember the story of Ruth. She, had, she, she, she didn't understand. She was confused. How can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come to you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, lots of theologians say, what does that mean? Drum roll, I don't know. Don't know. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the son of God, not Joe's son, Joseph's son. And behold, and he gives her a little footnote, a little, uh, little uh, 
extra here. Even your relative, probably an aunt, Elizabeth, also has conceived a son. Why do we think it's her aunt? Because she's older, maybe a cousin, in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. She's lived to her old age, Elizabeth has. And now she's in her old age, beyond the childbearing years, become pregnant herself. I love verse 37. Nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, the slave of the Lord, may it be done according to your word. If you underline things in your Bible, verse 38 ought to be. Do you understand what she was just signing on to? I think she did. The angel left. Now at this time, Mary got up, she arose, I love this, in a hurry, went to the hill country, to a city of Judah, entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, this is just interesting, it's fun, it's beautiful, it's joyful. The baby, that's Elizabeth's baby, who is John the Baptist, Left in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled or moved along by the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Somehow Elizabeth knew who Mary was carrying. Had she told her? I don't know. But you can't fake John the Baptist doing in vitro backflips. <laughs> Blessed are you. And how has it happened to me? Listen to this. That the mother of my... What does she say? The mother of my Lord would come to me. Do you hear the theology dripping from that statement? Have you ever gone to see a newborn and said, my Lord? Have you ever gone to a pregnant woman and said... This is probably going to be my king and my savior. No. There's dripping with ripe theology here. For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, when you say, hey, I'm here, the baby left in my womb for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. The angel had talked on behalf of God to Mary, and she says, blessed are you for believing it. Mary knew her scripture well. This was no ordinary junior hire. In fact, there is a world of parenting advice in this passage. Parents, this is a junior high girl who is about to compose a song that is so dense with Old Testament psalms and prophecy. Mary says in verse 46, go down to 46, my soul exalts the Lord my spirit is rejoiced in God, my Savior, for he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave, his slave, his servant. For behold, from this time all generations will count me blessed. You don't think she had an idea that something magnanimous was happening here? Have you ever, ladies, moms, have you ever thought about your child at the moment of their birth or at the moment of their conception and thought the whole world is going to be impacted here? Now, maybe you've hoped that. She knew that. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. 
and his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty things with his arm, scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He's brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble, fulfilled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He's given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. She says, I think, not think, I affirm that what's happening in my womb goes back to the promise to Abraham, blessing all generations. Her mind was so thoroughly saturated and equipped with the word of God, she echoes two of Hannah's prayers in 1 Samuel, several other allusions to the law, Psalms and prophets. I think she understood what she was agreeing to when she told the angel, so be it. Luke 1, 54, he's helped his servant Israel, remembered to be merciful, made promises, beginning with Abraham, and she understood herself to be the bearer of that fulfillment. Matthew, flip over to Matthew, records the obvious scandal that this would raise. Matthew chapter one. Uh, this was not going to be easy. And it would not be easy for Joseph. I mean, put yourself in his sandals for a minute. What is that conversation going to be like? Honey, I'm pregnant. And you know you have dealt with her impurity, as we find out. You know she is a virgin, as we find out. Matthew records the scandalous nature of this and what that would have been. Matthew 1, verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, engaged to Joseph, before they came together, which means they would have come together later, she was found to be with a child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, I love this. I love, love, love this. Being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, plan to divorce her, to send her away secretly, likely to dissolve their betrothal engagement, not to bring her forth in a trial which would have possibly had her stoned. And when he thought about this, he considered this. Behold, I love this. Guess what? At that time, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, now listen, I've had lots of dreams. I've had some weird dreams. I've had some odd dreams. But I've never thought of my dream as something that was real. This was not like your and my dreams. When Joseph is about to wake up from his dream, he's going to know something significant. And the, what happens in the dream is going to be confirmed by Mary that he hasn't spoken to about these things. The angel of the Lord appears, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. If you had dreamed that, would you have believed it? 
She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. That's the same thing told to Mary. For he will save his people from their sins. Now, put yourself in Joseph's position. Not only does he know, not only does Mary rather know that this is a special child, Joseph has now been told this is going to be the atonement for the sins of believers. cross is in that verse. Now all this took place to fulfill what was being, what had been spoken through the Lord, by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin will be with child and shall bear a son. They will call his name Emmanuel. Which translated means God with us. Can you imagine Mary and Joseph giggling one night and saying, remember Isaiah? <laughs> he was talking about you. Joseph woke up from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And, and he took Mary as his wife. I love this. He kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? Did you ever think of the fact that Joseph was as committed to proving that this child was the son of God and not even his. We don't know how long into the pregnancy this happened. But Joseph could look with all integrity, even if no one believed him, and they said, okay, Joseph, were you and Mary naughty? And he could say, no, she was a virgin until after Jesus was born. I've wondered so many times at the conversations that must have taken place between Mary and Joseph, between them and their parents. How does a junior hire come and tell mom? I just want you to know, I'm pregnant. And who's the father? Well, that's an interesting story. Because I was talking to this angel and he told me that the Holy Spirit made this happen. I don't know whether they believed her. They, they could have. We don't know, but it's not unlikely that they would said, right. Well, the community said, right. We know for a fact that the community didn't believe that at all. And don't think for a minute that that pregnancy, as they thought illegitimate pregnancy, didn't stick with Jesus' reputation. Remember that he's having the argument with the Pharisees in John 8, 41, and they're, he's talking about the, their father and who's the father of them, and, and they just throw one across his bow and say, you are doing the deeds of your father. He said that to them, and they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Why were they saying that? Because they were saying, you were born of fornication. You know the story got out. You know, people were talking, whispers, accusations, gossip, rumors. In our vernacular, she no doubt lived her whole life with a scarlet letter. And in the middle of all this, Luke 2.19 says, And Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. She knew the truth. She knew. She had a view of what God was doing. And this little baby 
her son and her savior. Here's what we need to know, though. Our minds instantly run to the speculation of what that would have been like, the scandal, the rumors, the gossip mill, the events. Who, what did her parents think? What did the neighbors think? What did Joseph's parents think? What, did he have to get permission to go ahead and marry her? Why, what, I want to know all that, and maybe one day in heaven we'll have a long lunch with them and be able to talk. We don't find out any of that. And remember, sometimes it's important when you're studying the Bible to say, why did God not say the things that he didn't say in favor of what he did say? What did he say? You know what the accent of Mary and Joseph's experience is here? Not their reaction or response, their obedience and their observation and proclamation of who this child was. It's amazing. Her view of the conception and birth, the Christmas story, was to see it as the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham that all the earth would be blessed through his seed, which was now in her womb, who was going to be the Savior who would provide salvation for sinners. And I love this. She treasured all these things in her heart. I think that's kind of a way of saying Mary kept a spiritual diary as she's watching Jesus develop over the years, don't you think that her mind went back to this many times? Oh, oh, okay, now, now I see. Oh, I see better now. Wow. Which leads us to number two. Her unique view of Jesus, her son and savior. I think we'll only get this far today. As an observant, contemplating mother, in other words, looking at Jesus' growth from childhood to manhood. Now, I want to give you a little background that might surprise some, but if you've read your, your Gospels recently, you'll remember. Jesus grew up under Mary's watchful eye, but he grew up in a very busy home. Mary and Joseph had other sons, Matthew 13, 55, Mark 6, 2 to 3, Acts 1, 14, 1 Corinthians 9, 45, Galatians 1, 19. And we know that she had other sons. We know their names. James, the author of the book of James, Joseph, who's also sometimes called Joseph or Joseph, Simon, and Judas, not that Judas, who is sometimes called Jude, and I think that's the author of the book of Jude. He had at least four brothers. But that's not, it doesn't stop there. We know that Joseph, by the way, was in the picture until at least Jesus' 13th year. Why? Because when he was 12, he goes to the temple. Um, he also, uh, Jesus, uh, Mary also had at least two daughters, Mark 6, 3 says. It says his sisters, plural, so there are at least two. This is a full house. We don't get much <laughs> of Jesus' upbringing except for one scene. I want to look at it with you. Luke chapter 2, you know this scene very well. Crazy scene. And when you see that he had, what, at least four plus two, that's at least six siblings plus him. That's seven children in the Joseph and Mary household. This scene might make more sense to you. 
Luke 2, 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. I love that. They, they took the travel from the north 100 miles down to celebrate Passover. When he became 12, that means he's now in his 13th year, he went up, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And again, that's that geography thing. They're coming from the north, but they went up because Jerusalem was higher So they go, they observe the custom of the feast. We don't know anything about that. But as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, about a week, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it. They had six other kids. Think about this. (laughs) And Jesus had never disobeyed, ever once. I want to say, can you imagine? I can't. She had a perfect child. So if he's missing, she's not thinking he's off in mischief. Nor is Joseph, who is here at the point at this time. So they, returning after spending the full number of days, they leave and they left him there. They were unaware of it. But verse 44, they supposed him to be in the caravan. A lot of people going. They just figured he was with another family, with some friends. They went about a day's journey, probably about 25 to 30 miles. Began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, that's interesting. They're looking for him for three days. They found him where? In the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers. You didn't sit with teachers unless you had authority. You always stood in the midst of a teacher. The teacher sat. Both listening to them and asking them questions. This was theology class with God. Which, that's why verse 47, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. He wrote them. And all who heard him were amazed, amazed, amazed. So when they saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Do I even need to talk about that? It wasn't, we're glad you're okay. Glad we found you. Have you had enough money to eat? Why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? And he says to his father, his his dad, Joseph, he says to him, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Do you see the irony there? They didn't. They did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them to Nazareth, continued in subjection to them. He was a good son. His mother treasured, again, all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God, favor with men. He's teaching in the synagogue. Back up in Nazareth. Many years had passed since then. We don't, at least 10, 15, 20 years. Jesus is teaching in his hometown. 
Mark 6, 3 says, the people heard him teaching and said, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. How can this be the illegitimate kid who knows more about theology and the scriptures than anyone we've ever heard? Luke 2, 40, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom. That is such a mind-numbing statement. How can God in flesh, how can God increase in wisdom? Doesn't he have all wisdom? Mary watched Jesus grow. You know, what was that like? What was that like to watch a... um, a perfect child grow up? What was it like for his poor brothers and sisters? He never did anything wrong. I mean, just, I don't think we're skating on thin ice to use our sanctified imaginations. That could not have been easy. I mean, we heard our kids say, oh, you think you're perfect? Imagine them saying that to him. You think you're perfect? Well, actually... Truth be told, how did you know? This is a mystery. I I, want to do something that um, I'll do from time to time and commend a book to you. And it's not a book that's going to answer all your questions. It is a book that's going to raise more and give you this mysterious wonder and worship. It's by my friend Bruce Ware, and it's called The Man Christ Jesus. He has three chapters on Jesus' growth and development. And I remember reading them, and I don't, sometimes I read pretty fast for classes. This was one I read, and I read the sentence again, I read the paragraph again, and I read the paragraph and the paragraph behind it again. And I kept reading and going, wow, it just melted my brain. So I wanted to invite you into a little brain melting and read you a few paragraphs from that book, okay? Another question that comes to mind as one contemplates the young boy Jesus, Dr. Ware says, growing in wisdom by the power of the Spirit, just what did the Spirit do to bring about about this increase and growth of wisdom in Jesus as he grew from childhood to adolescence to adulthood? That's the question I have. How did the Spirit bring about this growth? It stands to reason, he says, that the Spirit of God did with Jesus what he seeks to do with all of us in whom he dwells. He illuminated the word of God to Jesus' mind and cultivated that word in his heart as Jesus read, studied, heard, and was taught the precious spirit-inspired word. I think that's a great answer. I think it's the right answer. We all know, of course, that the adult Jesus exhibited an extraordinary knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, evidenced in his dealings with the various people as, they, as recorded in the gospel accounts. There's no question but that he knew his Bible well, but how did he come to know the Bible as he did? How did he have such mastery of its content and ability to appropriate text to mind when he needed them? Was his knowledge of the Bible automatic? Did he just know all of it due to his being God? It's a great question. Think about that. I mean, he was God, right? We affirm that. 
right? Good, good class. I mean, were his first words in the beginning, God created as a little toddler? Is, was that his? No. This is a mystery. And I can't, and Dr. Ware stops short of saying he can, explain the fullness of that, except we know that he, being fully man, learned the word of God just like you and I do. He goes on to say, Imagine the day when Jesus was reading through and meditating upon the prophet Isaiah. This is just incredible thought. Jesus is reading through in his Bible study, in his quiet time, at some point when he was a young man, and he comes to the prophet Isaiah. He comes to chapter 53, and the Spirit must have opened his mind and heart to understand from this text that he was, in fact, the suffering servant of whom Isaiah wrote. Is that crazy? I need a better word. Mysterious. He would be the ones who would bear the sins of many. He would be the one crushed by the Father, the one through whose work the Father would be able to justify the many. Jesus learned and grew in that at some point and didn't run from him but embraced that prophecy and ran to the cross. Where it goes on to say, imagine the growing wisdom of Jesus as he read and studied God's word. The spirit fed the Lord within him. The spirit of the Lord, rather, uh, within him would grant him increasing understanding not only of the truth of the word of God about his identity as the son of God, the suffering servant, the one who came into the world to give his life as a ransom for many. When Jesus tells his parents in Jerusalem that he must be in his father's house and about his father's business, we realize that At merely 12 years old, he knew who he was and the work he had to accomplish as a junior hire. Then where says this? Marvel then at these small but profound observations recorded for us in Luke's gospel. Imagine how Mary marveled. Just imagine the front row seat she had at the growth of the God-man. When we look at Mary rightly, we come to learn to marvel with her at her son. Mary watched Jesus grow in a busy house with at least six other siblings. Let me say it again. If anyone ever knew if Jesus were a fraud, it would have been her. And yet her faith can inspire, it should inspire ours. Mary is not to be idolized, she's to be emulated. She believed the prophecies. She believed the angel. She trusted the shepherds. She trusted the wise men. She's a beautiful example of a faithful believer who took God at his word. Now, great lady. I want to give you a head start for next week, but she wasn't sinless. And we're going to look more closely at at least two accounts that show that next week. 
Understanding her view of and worship of her son should fuel ours. When we see Mary, we don't say, wow, what a woman. We say, wow, I want to imitate this woman, woman and saying, wow, what a savior. And when you watch not only her view of him, but his final demonstration of pastoral care on the cross and realize it was toward her, it outlines for us the special relationship that they had. It's important that we look at her rightly. We learn from her rightly. And we sit with her in worshiping and honoring her son. Let's never let tears be wiped from her eyes in heaven because we view her more highly than we should.